Good morning, Trinity Church. Good morning, Alan. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege of bringing God, God's word to you, not in the sense of a, a message on a passage, but a message on a subject, which is the Holy Spirit. In Acts, we have been seeing different instances of God's Spirit at work. So that's what we're going to focus on today. I'm going to be reading from a few passages, three actually, uh, as we get started. For your sake, I'll just direct you to Acts 11, verse 13 to 18. And I've just got a couple of verses I'm going to read prior to that. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First, Luke three sixteen. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then Acts 1, verses 4 and 5 says, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, sorry, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And now Acts eleven thirteen to 17. And he, Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want to start off this morning by making a clear statement that the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit in you is just as important for your salvation and life in Christ as your belief in Christ. So what we come to this morning is, what does that work of the Holy Spirit look like in you? And that's what we're going to give our attention to this morning, with the Holy Spirit and his gifts. Now, as we've gone through Acts, we have seen that the Holy Spirit sets up the framework. The Holy Spirit's work helps establish the structure for Luke's writing in Acts. Luke has been called a theologian of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for this is that Luke, in Acts alone, mentions the Holy Spirit 57 times at least. And between Luke's gospel and Acts, he mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel author combined. So Mark, Matthew, John, twice as many as those three combined, we have Luke speaking of the Holy Spirit. So as we understand that, and as we look at the Holy Spirit this morning, we're going to focus 
some of our attention on the activity that the Holy Spirit does in the formation of his church. Luke's frequent mention of the Holy Spirit, especially in Acts, may have caused many of us to think or believe that miraculous works, such as speaking in tongues or by, through the Holy, by or through the Holy Spirit, are just as common today, or at least something that can be happening today and they're to be expected. People that move in this direction will say, we have a big God, and we know that he does big things. Amen to that. But if we look carefully, as we look for the miraculous, we'll start to notice a different story. When we read all of our Bibles, we do see God doing amazing things. It is a book about him. It's a book about what he's done in the world, especially the redemption and calling of his people. His work in the scriptures focuses on how he brings glory to himself through saving a people for himself and bringing them into his kingdom. In Genesis alone, for example, we see that he created the world out of nothing. He destroyed the world with a flood. He confused the languages of the people, spreading them across the earth. He reveals himself to specific people in different times and even forms a nation for his name. These are all amazing things that God has done. But what we don't see many times is God doing these amazing works through people. The reason for this is that the biblical pattern of miraculous works performed by a person are tied to major acts of redemptive history. We see that reason because that's what is presented to us. Redemptive history, major turning points in the plan of God, is when we see God working through individuals with a purpose. There's essentially four periods in the Bible where God's servants are attributed with doing miraculous work, signs and wonders. These are not exclusive, but they, and the lines are not clearly drawn, but they do stand out to us as we look at the Bible and these periods. The first period is with Moses. God calls Moses to rescue the people, and Moses is commanded to perform signs and wonders to testify that he was sent by God for their deliverance. Moses preached of this deliverance and what God has called his people to do. His work is unique. In fact, Deuteronomy 34, 10 and 11 records this about Moses. It says, and, ha- and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. That's a standard setter for us. None like him who does all these signs and wonders. The next major time we see men doing miracles and signs and wonders is in First and Second Kings. Now, this is the period when most of our, our prophets in our Bible wrote. In the narratives between 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 13, we see two gentlemen, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha perform miraculous signs. They do miraculous works. They supply an unending supply of flour and oil for a couple of widows. They each raise children from the dead and many other signs. These prophets were there, and they were sent to call Israel and her kings back to repentance, to worship the true God. And the signs they did testified to God sending them. Other prophets did do interesting things. We see one marrying a prostitute, one laying on his side for many hundred days, but they were not known for performing signs, miracles. 
The third period of signs and miracles is when Jesus himself came. All through the Gospels, we read of Jesus doing mighty works, wonders, and signs. All of these point to God anointing him, to, to the work that God is doing in him to bring salvation and to prove that he is the Messiah who is bringing that kingdom. And then the fourth and last stage is the apostles. The author of Hebrews notes that the message of salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Paul says something similar about his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 12.12, where he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So all of that to say is that the Bible presents to us a pattern, a pattern of how God works through people at different times to attest to his work and his word. That's what they're for. This pattern helps us understand Acts, and especially how we understand the Holy Spirit's work in Acts. And it also helps us to understand what we should expect about the Holy Spirit today. Now, we don't hear or talk much about the Holy Spirit, and part of the reason for that is probably an overreaction to the Pentecostal charismatic movement, where there has been many instances of abuses and misrepresentations of who the Holy Spirit is and his work in the church. So for us to get an answer to this question, we need to go to Scripture. We're going to spend a lot of time with Luke, and we'll spend some time with Paul, and These passages that we'll look at today tell us what we need to know about the Holy Spirit, how he worked in the formation of a new covenant community, and how we should expect him to be at work among us. So here's the main idea for this morning. The Holy Spirit is Christ's gift to you. So you should know what is expected to happen in you. The Holy Spirit is Christ's gift to you, so you should know what his expected work is in you. So to do that, I'm going to just give an overview of Acts. This is really important. We probably did this at the beginning of our our study in Acts, but I'm going to work through it because the framework of Acts really helps us understand why we see what we see and when we see it. Then we're going to examine the elephant in the room, which is the sign of tongues and related sign gifts. And after that, we'll seek to understand the Holy Spirit's work for us today. So first, the structure of Acts. The way Luke structures Acts helps us to understand the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in the formation of his new covenant community or the church. And it's important for us as readers to pay attention to how Luke tells the story. The reason it's important, like I said, is that Luke structures the narrative so that we would see convincingly how God proved that his saving work through Christ And the gift of the Holy Spirit was for all nations and not just the Jews. That's Luke's point. This is how Luke shows that the lines have been redrawn to mark off who his covenant people are. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus, after teaching his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection, Luke records in verses uh, 4 and 5, which I read earlier, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is rephrased in 1.8, 
which gives us the framework for Acts. This is kind of like Luke's table of contents. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's Luke's table of contents. The Holy Spirit coming upon the people who receive the word is the driving force behind the story. So the major events of the Spirit are recorded in four phases. Acts 2 is the first phase, Acts 8, and then Acts 10, and then Acts 19. We see the Holy Spirit being poured out in remarkable ways. And as we know, we all, it all began in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, 1 through 4, the 120 disciples were gathered on the day of Pentecost when tongues of fire came and rested on them. And then in Acts 2, 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This event marked the inauguration of the new covenant, the beginning and the birth of the church. What God had promised in the Old Testament is being poured out in a new and fresh and unprecedented way. Because people had the Spirit in different ways before. God had to regenerate Old Testament believers through the Spirit. But this is new. This is fresh. This is not unlike anything that we have ever seen before. Jesus had given his Holy Spirit to the Twelve after his, to his apostles after his resurrection, according to John 20, 22. So this experience is distinct from that. The difference is seen in Luke's choice of words. In 2, 4 of Acts, he says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. At this point, they speak in tongues, declaring the mighty works of God. And once the crowd hears and reacts, Peter gives this famous Pentecost sermon. As a result of his preaching, 3,000 people received his word. We don't see any mention of signs, but we do see 3,000 people were converted. 3,000 people came to the Lord Jesus. That was the work that, that the Spirit was doing. The next phase is Judea and Samaria. After the execution of Stephen, Luke records, beginning in Acts 8, that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the, that framework, the table of contents is being thrown out at us here. Among those scattered is Philip. Acts 8.5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. In verse 12 of chapter 8, we see that the Samaritans believe Philip's message about Jesus and the kingdom of God, and they are baptized. Now, last week we heard that the Jewish believers hadn't really grasped how the promises of God would extend to other nations. This would have included the Samaritans because they were a despised group of a mixed race of, of Jews. This is why the apostles came to them to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And just like the original 120 in Acts 2 were believers and later received the Spirit, so too these Samaritans had believed the way Luke presents it. We see no indication in the text that their faith was inadequate or insincere. What is at issue is whether the Jews and Samaritans would continue to have a separate faith like they had a separate Judaism. God does not want there to be any sign of a division of a different kind of Christianity. Now, Luke doesn't say in Acts 8 how evident the Holy Spirit was when it came upon the Samaritans, but we know that it was because Simon Magus sees it, and he wants that power. 
I do want to emphasize, again, just to repeat, that this is a unique time. It's a, it's a transitional time in the history of redemption. Because today, we'll, we need to emphasize in our day that when a person believes, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit as an instantaneous event with regeneration. What's happening here in Acts is different because there were people who believed in the Lord that did not have this baptism. And as we see the work of the new covenant being established, the church being built, we see that these events are unique to those circumstances. According to Acts 1.8, after Judea and Samaria comes the end of the earth. Acts 10 really marks the beginning of that stage as Peter takes the gospel to Caesarea, which is a Roman port city on the western coast of Israel. The mission to the Gentiles is the focus for the rest of Acts, mostly. Now, if the Samaritans were a somewhat hard sell for the Jewish believers, the Gentiles were a whole different story. And it was difficult for Peter to understand and accept. This is why, as we learned last week, that Peter says in Acts 10, 34 and 35, he says, Truly, or now I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The, the, par, the problem with the Jews understanding the Gentile inclusion is pointed out by Luke in Acts 10.45. Listen to what he says. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. The believers from among the circumcised. That's who he gives us, he points us to, to see who's amazed by this. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So Peter makes it clear in Acts 11, 15 through 17, that what happened with the Gentiles who believed is the same thing that happened to them. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how, John, how, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So here we see phase three has begun. The expansion among the Gentiles then continues outside of the promised land. Caesarea was on the western coast of Israel, but the story picks up with Paul, and they go to Gentile lands far away from the land of Israel. In Acts 19, we see another interesting event with the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's the last episode of the Holy Spirit falling on people with accompanying signs. Paul comes across some disciples at Ephesus, but these disciples, disciples haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, and they've only been baptized with John's baptism. So these may be considered Old Testament or Old Covenant Gentile believers, they had heard of Israel's God, and they had heard the message of repentance that John had preached. That's the baptism that they had been baptized with. But they still need the full gospel. Just like Cornelius was told, you need to go to Peter to hear a message by which you will be saved, these believers needed to hear the gospel. So Paul explains what John's ministry was, which was pointing to Christ. He explains that to the Ephesians Ephesian disciples, and in Acts 15, or excuse me, 19, verses 5 and 6, it tells us the result. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So comes phase four. 
The end of the earth is being reached, and the gospel is spreading across the earth, and that's all that we see across Acts. This is how we understand the framework of Acts, Acts 1-8 being the table of contents, and it sets up these stages, and what we see in these stages or in these phases is God working and demonstrating in a very unique and visible way that his gospel is spreading, that all people from all nations are being brought into the church. In between these major events and acts, multitudes receive the word and believe. The church that Jesus promised to build is being built as people believe the gospel. So I'll ask this question. Is it right to take one statement and find a structure in that statement? Can I use Acts 1-8 that way to say, okay, this is how we need to understand it? Well, like many other biblical authors, many other authors altogether, authors are purposeful in their writing, especially the biblical authors. They wrote with a purpose, and the structures are easily visible if we just sit down and look at them. For example, Moses wrote in Genesis using the phrase, these are the generations to mark off different phases in Genesis. This is what Luke has done with Acts 1.8, and that's how he shapes the narrative of Acts. So it's with this structure... In particular, that we see how Luke portrays the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in a unique and unprecedented way. All to make clear that God is saving a people from every nation for himself. And those people are marked by the Holy Spirit. This is how many preachers prepare their sermons with structure. They give the main idea, the points, all with the hope that you'll understand where we're going. And just as a preacher will do this, so Acts does. But what does this mean for you? Well, primarily we need to grow in our ability to read the scriptures with an eye to the author's purpose. Sometimes we don't understand what's going on because we're not paying attention to the structure. And if you're like me, you're going to need some help with this. I needed help with it. I still need help with it. I'm, I'm using resources. But it's there. And sometimes we just need to slow down and be more deliberate and careful readers of God's word. And I just want to encourage you with that because sometimes these things are not always there when we read the Bible the way that we do. But what's important is that understanding and seeing Luke's structure helps us see the direction of the whole story. This also helps us see what's going on with the sign gifts from the Holy Spirit like tongues and their meaning and their purpose. So what is going on with speaking in tongues? Three times distinctly... Three times only, we see it in Acts in very dramatic ways, with the 120, with the people in Cornelius' house and the people in Ephesus. So to put it succinctly, speaking in tongues and other miraculous gifts were never normative. Rather, they were powerful demonstrations of God working in a visible way to further his purposes in calling and marking a people for himself. So we're going to focus our attention on tongues since that's what stands out in Acts in these events. And we also need to think through this because of how it has commonly been understood by others. So what is it? What is speaking in tongues? The plain answer is that people are speaking in other languages, other earthly languages. Acts 2 helps us come to this understanding because when the Holy Spirit filled the 120 and they began to speak in other tongues, Jews who had been spread across the eastern world you see the the places that they were from in acts 2 they hear 
these apostles, or these disciples speaking the one mighty works of God in their own languages. They were bewildered, but they understood it. Jews from other nations, Jews who had probably been raised up in other nations and had a different first language, were now speaking or hearing people speak in the language that they knew. Unfortunately, some have proposed that not, that is not all that tongues is in the Bible. In fact, some common Bible resources, such as Bible encyclopedias and lexicons, give definitions of tongues based not on the whole biblical record, but on cultural understandings or experiences or passages taken out of context. And I'll give you an example. I went to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible to try to find a nice, concise definition of tongues, and here's what I found. Ecstatic phenomenon traditionally associated with religious experiences. Later in that article, it says glossolalia, which is just the word for tongues, consists of a flow of unintelligible sounds that transcend the usual processes of verbal communication. As such, tongues are not languages. This is a Bible resource. Two things I want to point out from this resource's definition. The first is that tongues are ecstatic. That's what this definition says. Well, what does ecstatic mean? Ecstatic is being beyond reason and beyond self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit is to have self-control. That seems to be contradictory to anything that's ecstatic. The second thing is it comes to the conclusion that because they're done in an unusual way, that they're not languages. Well, we can certainly agree that this is something supernatural. This is something that transcends the normal learning process, but that does not mean that they're not languages. And the reason I would share this with you is because you may use Bible resources that are going to give you these answers, and they're going, to come, they're going to bring you their conclusions. I want you to stop and think carefully about how they reach their conclusions. And most importantly, we need to ask, what does the Bible say? And fortunately, God's word does address this at length. Paul addresses it in his first letter to the Corinthians. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians, if you'll turn there. We're going to start in chapter 12, where Paul takes up the issue of spiritual gifts. While you're turning there, let me remind you that 1 Corinthians is largely a letter to a church that isn't doing well. They have division, they have pride, they have sexual immorality, they're defrauding one another, they're flirting with idolatry, they're drunkards, and they're showing partiality. Paul is addressing a church that is boasting in its spiritual gifts because in God's grace they had received many blessings in the Lord. Paul affirms this. But what else does he say? He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This is related to their divisions, but this is typical for all of the letter. In 1 Corinthians 4, says, 4 7, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All through this letter, he is writing to correct false beliefs and false practices that threaten the unity of the church and its ability to glorify Christ. So as we look at his discussion on gifts, we're going to start in chapter 12. This is what he says in verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, 
And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So see here, he's correcting them again. Verse 2, he says that they were led astray, which means they were led by something, but he's indicating that that's not God. He even addresses speaking. What a person will or will not say if they're in the Spirit of God. And he goes on in this chapter to speak of the varieties of gifts, services, and activities, yet this is what he wants them to see. Yet all of these are from the one God through one baptism in the triune Lord. As he begins to lift off, list off some examples of gifts, he again affirms that all these come from the same spirit, implying, I think you would agree, that these will all serve one ultimate purpose. Paul gives us that purpose in 1 Corinthians 12.7. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I want you to anchor your thoughts on that for just a second. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In the rest of chapter 12, he speaks about the one body having many parts to give an illustration of the variety's gifts and how not one person or gift is unimportant in the body. He does, however, say that there are higher gifts, but not all get the same gifts. And chapter 13 is a hinge on which chapters 12 and 14 turn. Love. Love for God. Love for others. Love is the test of genuineness for every gift. It's the test of usefulness for every gift. He says, if I speak in the tongues of angels and of men, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That's a thought he's going to come back to in 1 Corinthians 14. There he begins to address the use of the more spectacular invisible gifts. And I just want to remind you again that this church is being rebuked for their prideful self-exaltation and their prideful partiality. This is the context that we need to approach the instructions that we have here. You can still see the air of rebuke in the way Paul contrasts prophecy and tongues. He prioritizes prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, that is clearly and distinctly proclaiming or telling forth God's word. Why is it greater than tongues? What he says is because no one understands the person speaking in tongues. He says this in 1 Corinthians 14.3, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So keep that in mind. That's what prophecy is for. For their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 4, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So do you see the contrast? Builds up himself is not what the gifts are for. This is what 1 Corinthians 12, 7 supports. This is not an encouragement to a private encounter with God for one's own edification. That goes against the definition of edification. It goes against the way that edification is portrayed throughout all of the New Testament. Edification, which is just a big word for building up, is always directed towards other people. It's always focused on others every time. That makes us ask the question, though, when we get to verse 5, where Paul says he wants them all to speak in tongues. Now, I'm inclined to think he's being sarcastic. People have a hard time with that idea, but it seems apparent when he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, you can almost hear the sarcasm in it. Already you have all that you want. 
Already you have become rich. Remember, this is the church that's full of partiality and greed and immorality. Without us, you would have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Then in verse 14, he writes these things to admonish them in, first, in chapter 4. Paul is using sarcasm as a pointed way of teaching to point out what they're boasting in as, as being wrong. So back in chapter 14, Paul explains the lack of benefit of tongues in verses 6 through 12 by showing that voices, just like instruments, are of no use if what is said or played is not distinct. This is why interpretation was necessary, even mandatory, if this gift would be exercised in the church. In verse 14, he appears to allude to the possibility that even the speaker is not sure of what he is saying. And just as a comment on this, I don't, I don't think that this means that he or she is speaking involuntarily or in a gibberish. It's cer- certainly something that's outside of the person's immediate control, but it's not a lack of self-control. Because in verse five or 15, Paul says, if I would have the opportunity to speak in, in tongues, he says, I would rather pray with my spirit and my mind also. He, to speak in a way that's understandable. You know, he has a choice to make there. He's not out of control with himself. And what I believe is even more important as to why the gift of tongues is given in the first place. And this reason is key for why we see Acts recording the use of tongues is in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. Now there Paul cites Isaiah 11, or excuse me, Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. In, in 14, 1421, Paul says, I'm in the wrong chapter. It's going to make a big difference. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. If you look at the context of Isaiah, where these lines are from, you'll see that Israel is proud, they're unteachable, they're drunkards, they see God's word as a tedious burden that results in their destruction. They're not able and not willing to receive the message. So he says, I'm going to send this message to you by people that you don't even understand. So when Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 14, he says that this sign, this sign of tongues as a gift for unbelievers. What does he mean by that? Well, 1 Corinthians 14.23 answers that question. It means that it is a judgment, a means of hardening unbelievers. People will come in. If people are speaking in tongues, people from the outside come and say, will they not say you are out of your minds? Is this drawing anyone in? It's not. It's pushing them away. Let's go back to Acts now. Back to where we first see tongues appear in Acts 2. This is really important. Verse 12, this sign was something new and extraordinary and all were amazed and perplexed. But in verse 13, others mock saying, they are filled with new wine. The people that don't understand what's going on accuse them of being drunk. Ironic, isn't it, that in Isaiah 14 or 28, the Lord rebukes the people of being drunk and unable to understand, and now hear those who mock the disciples accuse them of being drunk. 
unbelieving Jews. That's what it's focusing on. Rather than being amazed and try to find out what's going on, mock. They mock the work that the Spirit's doing. And the Lord is pronouncing judgment against them because they don't repent and believe. They're not granted the gift of repentance. The next instance shows up in chapter 10, which we looked at. And I pointed out that verse 45 shows that those of the circumcision party were amazed. The Jews who were there were amazed that the sign of the Spirit had come upon them. Paul mentioned last week that the original Jewish believers heard the Great Commission as a mission to Jews. We see this is apparent in Acts 11.19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to, to no one except Jews. That's who they think this is for. So when we look at what happened with Cornelius, what does Luke focus our attention on? He points to the believers from among the circumcised. So these are Jewish believers. They're amazed. They're amazed because they, these Jews, were hearing Gentiles speak in tongues. They were amazed because the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them. It seems, though, that they understood them because they recognized that the Gentiles were extolling God. It's possible, and just speculation on my part, that perhaps these Gentiles were extolling God in Hebrew. The text doesn't say, but what we do know is that they saw, they heard them extolling God in connection with them speaking in tongues. Either way, tongues were present because Jews were present at key transitions and progressions of the gospel and its reception. So this, this sign against unbelieving Jews was a judgment. Perhaps not in this case a judgment of condemnation, but a, a judgment of discipline to wake them up to their partiality, which is why this, that's how why Peter addresses it in these chapters. The last instance of tongues and acts appears in 19, like I mentioned earlier, these disciples who are at Ephesus. Now, there's not a whole lot of details in this story. It's just nine short verses for the whole thing. Whether Jews is present is not super clear, but it's, there's definitely Jews in the area because as we read further in Acts and he goes into Ephesus, there's synagogues, which means there's Jews present. So in Acts 19, these Ephesian disciples receive the Holy Spirit, there's tongues spoken, and there are Jews in the area. So let me summarize what all I've just said. That's, it's been a lot of information so far this morning. So let me bring us into a summary. How Luke's, Luke using Acts 1.8 as a table of contents shows us how the gospel with the gift of the Holy Spirit moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The manifestation of speaking in tongues is related to this expansion, but not always explicitly as seen in, in its omission with the conversion to the Samaritans. Paul's discussion of tongues in 1 Corinthians and Luke Luke's mention of it in Acts demands that tongues is a language that is meaningful and understandable by someone somewhere. It's not a chirp and a mutter, a kind of babbling typical of the occult, but real human language. And its manifestation harkens back to God bringing judgment against unbelieving Jews. Which brings up the next question. Is this a gift that we should expect today? I'll be brief. No. Okay, I'll be a little less brief. Tongues were a sign that accompanied the initiation of the new covenant. And through them, as we see in Acts 2, 
it created a separation between those who repented among the Jews and those who did not. Tongues are tied to prophecy in both 1 Corinthians and Acts. This is another reason why it's not appropriate. They were signs that seemed to go together. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that the one who speaks in a tongue utters mysteries in the spirit. So mysteries is, is that same word is used in 1 Corinthians 13 about having all mysteries and all knowledge in 1 Corinthians 13, indicating that it's revelatory in nature, that those who were receiving this sign were receiving a message from God, whether it was in their own tongue or another one. Ephesians 2, 19-20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. A foundation is laid once, just as the cornerstone is set first and not moved. The apostles and prophets who followed Christ are those who gave us our New Testament, and God's revelation is complete. That's a key thing to understand. Christ's revelation is complete. In Christ, God's revelation is complete in Christ and what his apostles wrote of him. So the need for this gift is what's brought into question. If, if revelatory gifts were given for the establishment of the church to show a sign of God's progression into a new era, what is the purpose? The scriptures are complete. They're sufficient. It's a sure word. The prophets, they still speak through the word that's been given to us. And the prophets still speak because it is from the living word, which is from the living God. 1 Corinthians was an early letter. Paul's visit to Corinth was at the, time of, at the same time where he encountered these disciples at Ephesus in Acts 19. The New Testament was just getting written and compiled. Supernatural gifts are slowly fading away as the New Testament progresses. In early church history like into the second century, testifies to the cessation of these things, the revelatory gifts altogether, especially tongues and prophecy, which would have been shortly after John, the last apostle, died. So does this mean God doesn't communicate to us in special ways? I don't have a reason to say no. The Holy Spirit does dwell in us. So who am I to question what that experience is? But in every case, we need to be cautious not to confuse the leading of the Spirit and the way that the New Testament, by and large, instructs us about what that leading looks like and how that Holy Spirit will work in conjunction with his word and our conscience so that we would live a life that is glorifying to him. Caution is the attitude we need to have when we think about an experience that goes beyond what we would expect. Now, not everybody is going to take this view that I've been sharing with you this morning, and I'm not going to settle all this issue in a single sermon or even a lifetime of work. But the question that does settle on us is how we will interact with those who believe otherwise. This is really important. We still want to make sure that we're demonstrating love towards other believers. We need to maintain a commitment to that love that Christ has given to us and a commitment to the scriptures. So if someone tells me they believe God revealed something to them, whether in the sense of a prophecy or a tongue, my disbelief about what exactly that was isn't going to change their mind about what they've experienced. Now, here's what I can do. If what they say is true, I can say, yes, God's word says that right here. And if they say something that doesn't align with what Scripture says, I'm like, well, wait a minute, doesn't God's word say this? 
the best way I'm going to serve this brother who thinks he's having these experiences that are somewhat supernatural or outside what we had expect is to point them to the scriptures. God has given us a more certain word. We know that the God spirit does work in us in unique ways. First Thessalonians five nineteen to 21 says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. That's our, our charge. So what we can say and affirm is that God's way of teaching today is through the expository preaching of his word. Not through fresh revelation, but his revealed, completed word in scripture. So God has worked in amazing ways. The outpouring of the spirit and the birth of the church marked a brand new way of God doing things, a way that he had promised. So how do we see the spirit at work today? This is, this is all leading to us what we should expect today about who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing. The Holy Spirit is always present, and he's always working in his church. He gives gifts. He leads his saints. He prepares each believer for glory by continually pointing them to Christ, and so that each believer will build up other believers in Christ. So let's affirm some things that we know about the Holy Spirit. First, he is the Almighty God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Luke equates the Holy Spirit as God really clearly in Acts 5 when Ananias lies. The baptismal formula in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, a benediction in first, or 2 Corinthians 13, 14, link all three persons of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Spirit is equated with the power of God. He is present and active in his creation. He empowers God's servants, such as Samson, for mighty works. We see some of the disciples in Acts being filled with the Spirit, and their boldness is increased, and they proclaim the word in the midst of persecution. God's power is at work in that. The Spirit communicates the authority of God. This is seen in the Spirit being the one who moved in the prophets. In essence, he's the one who wrote the scriptures as he worked through these human authors. And in the same vein, he gives wisdom and understanding through our reading of, and conversations and the preaching of God's word, a gift we call illumination. He guides the people in the truth. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is the author of scripture, and his work assures us of his word. The Spirit is the one whom Christ gives gifts for service. I'll say that one more time. The Spirit is the one through whom Christ gives gifts for service. These are instances where they're sometimes supernatural. In the Old Testament, we see uh, a couple of dudes named Bezalel and Aholiab, if that's how you want to pronounce them. But they're given insight as to how to make the tabernacle beautiful. Most importantly, as we understand it today, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates, who makes us born again. John 3 points, to us, points this to us very clearly. He opens blind eyes and deaf ears so that his people would see the beauty of Christ and hear the wonders of his word, understanding them and rejoicing in Christ and the salvation that it proclaims. The Spirit is, distribu- is the one who builds up the church 
as a dwelling place for God in Ephesians 2. What Luke wants us to focus on is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is the new covenant mark of God's people. All of these things, this is what we want to focus on. The Holy Spirit, the way that Luke presents the Holy Spirit and the way the scriptures present the Holy Spirit is that he is the mark of God's new covenant people. This is what Luke is concerned with. And he uses phrases like poured out, came upon, filled. And whenever this happens, it's clear to everyone that God is at work through them. Peter quotes Joel 2.28 in his Pentecost sermon, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Similar language about this pouring out is in Ezekiel and Isaiah. God, through these prophets, promises to pour out his Holy Spirit on his people like water is poured on thirsty ground. This pouring out is tied directly to the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and 36. Ezekiel Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people." And I will be your God, and I will deliver you from your uncleannesses. God has marked them as his people. He has marked the people so that God is their God, and he delivers them from their uncleannesses. The uncleanness of idolatry, the uncleanness of sin, they will experience God's forgiveness because they've been reconciled to God as God pours out his Holy Spirit on them. John the Baptist promised it. Jesus promises it. John 14, Jesus says that he'll ask the Father and he'll give you the Spirit, even the Spirit of truth, to be with you forever. In 16, he says that this is going to happen after I depart. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He continues saying, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But here's the key. When the spirit of truth comes, and he's talking to the apostles who are going to write the Bible. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In these passages, Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come when he leaves, when he departs. He and the Father sent the Spirit when Jesus was glorified. He is the Spirit of truth. He is concerned to glorify Christ because of his work in you. You see, what we often hear, and this leads us to often think, is that the Holy Spirit baptizes us. I have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit gifts us for me. That the Holy Spirit is about me. The truth is, is that Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. It's his gift. Jesus gives gifts of service to his church by the Holy Spirit. 
and the Holy Spirit is given to us for Jesus and his glory. So when Luke begins Acts, and he mentions the Holy Spirit several times, one, te- one detail that Jesus gives about the coming of the Spirit is that they will receive power. And this gets some people excited. And it should, because it's a power that we can't have on our own. But what is it? What, what, what amazing works is God going to do when the Holy Spirit comes on me? We need to be careful that we don't have the same attitude that Simon Magus does in, in Acts 8. The power is not for our sake or our enjoyment. It's power to endure suffering that comes as witnesses to the gospel. To the power that comes in being bold to proclaim the gospel of the lordship of Jesus Christ who was crucified and was raised. As we think about the structure of Acts, and just as Jesus promised, he has sent his spirit from heaven. As Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and everyone who repents and is baptized, identifying himself with Christ, receives the Holy Spirit. You have believed, and the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes. You've believed because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes so that you may glorify the Lord. By the Spirit, you are continually given gifts of grace from God. God pours out his Holy Spirit to you, not like pouring out a glass or a pitcher, but like a breached dam that's flooding you with God's grace and his love. He's assuring that you, you that you are his child, reconciled and at peace. That theme of peace is what we just saw in our, our passage last week. Peter told Cornelius that God sent a word to Israel preaching good news of peace. This is peace with God. Peace that is now yours as his adopted child. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this peace, or if you don't see in yourself none of, of this evidence of the Holy Spirit, I invite you to come to Jesus now in repentance and faith. Look to Jesus who died for your sin, who was raised to give you life, who sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and welcoming you if you would turn to him. As we read in our liturgy morning, uh, our readings this morning, the Spirit makes us free from the law of sin. Before we were born of the Spirit, we lived for ourselves and for our own sake, but now we have been given a new heart a new spirit, so that we will love the Lord and walk in his ways. Jesus Christ still gives gifts through his spirit. And I don't have time to go over any of these in detail. I would point you to 1 Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, 1 Peter, as they have examples of these gifts. And these lists aren't exhaustive, but they're a sample. Some of those gifts even seem mundane, but all of the gifts have this one thing in common. Therefore, the common good to bring glory to Christ, to build up the church to maturity so that we would grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ, to be people that really reflect God's image. The Holy Spirit is Christ's gift to you. And what do we do with this gift? 1 Corinthians fourteen twelve. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Let's pray.
Father, your word is indeed a sure word. We need your grace to understand some of the complexities of your word, but we also need your grace to help us to love and think about your word. We are indebted to you to live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit which you have given to all of us who believe. Your spirit has given us a power to be faithful witnesses in the face of persecution, whatever that may look like. And we give you thanks that that is the way that you have marked us off as your people, that you have said that you will be our God and we are your people. Help us to live and walk by the spirit that you have given us so that we would enjoy you, enjoy your presence, to not grieve you with our sin, but that we would continually come to you to seek your fullness all the time. We thank you for your grace, and we thank you for this word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.